Good evening to you all. I recently had some genetic testing done. So, uh, in part because I was curious about questions of my ancestry. So I decided to participate in this large-scale study of um, uh, ancestry, genetic heritage around the world that is being done by National uh, Genographic. So the results to me were quite interesting and somewhat surprising. And I thought, hmm, this is really, would be of interest to other people in my family. So I decided I would go and spend some time with my mother and share the results with her and other people in my family. So I went to my mother's and she was quite interested in this topic. So she was interested until we got to the part where the DNA was divided up according to its source. So my total DNA was divided up according to its source. And the very first chart that you turn to said Neanderthal (laughs) 2.4% and then it said Denisovan, 1.3%. And it went on to talk about the contribution of these cousin species to the human genome. So these aren't Homo sapiens, these are uh, relatives to what the modern human is now. Uh, And this is present in the the genome of a lot of humans, apparently including me. (laughs) So, there's a long pause here as I show this to my mother, complete with pictures of the Neanderthals. (laughs) And she says... That must be your father's side of the family. (laughs) So after we recovered from this (laughs) event, then we went to some charts that talked about what's called my maternal haplogroup. So this is... uh, a genetic heritage that's handed down unchanged from your mother's, uh, from her mother, from your grandmother's mother, your great-grandmother's mother, your great-grandmother's mother, all the way back into deep human history. So the research estimated that the particular version that I and my mother shared was from a mutation that happened in an individual woman somewhere in the late Paleolithic era, probably while this woman was living in 
Western Asia. So maybe 25,000 years ago. I mean, before agriculture. This is during the period where in Europe they were doing like the cave paintings and things like that. And it was kind of amazing to realize that there was a part of me that was an intact inheritance coming from this individual woman who lived 25,000 years ago. And when I did a little more research on what was involved with this particular haplotype, I realized that, oh, there's some things about the relative alkaline nature of the brain that goes along with this and some uh, beneficial effects uh, to protect against certain diseases. And if I were HIV positive, I would have uh, a much slower progression in the untreated disease than if I didn't have this. How amazing. How amazing that something like neural functioning could be affected by something that happened 25 years ago, 1,000 years ago. But of course, without this kind of testing, I would never know any of this. You know, if you really think about it, most of us know our family heritage only a few generations back, if that. You know, we might, might know parents. We might not even know parents. But we might know parents, or at least one of them. We might know grandparents. Maybe we know great-grandparents. Maybe if you had somebody who kept a family Bible or something or has done uh, genealogical research, you might have an idea about, you know, further back than that. But most of us don't know very much. And yet here we are, all of us, the products of so many, many generations of physical evolution. All of us have many ancestors, many, many generations that have come before us. And all of us, the consensus seems to be, come as literal descendants of one single African woman. All of the surviving human branches go back to one African woman. And some now think of a single male. And so we are literally related to every other human being not just theoretically, literally related to everyone. And these ancestors, this chain of ancestors are there in the very structure of our bodies and our minds. And we may not recognize or identify them as the source of much of uh, who and how we are, but they are there. They are present in a real way within us. When the Buddha talks about the teaching of anatta, which is usually translated as not-self, it's the third of the three universal characteristics of all things, not-self, 
anatta. It can seem very abstract and hard to understand. But he's really talking about the fact that the human body and mind and all other things as well are open systems, not closed. Meaning that we and everything else is permeable, meaning things can come into uh, our system and can exit our system. And we are affected and shaped by causes and conditions which originate and extend beyond our physical boundaries. So if we were to take, take a look at uh, how the, this open system shows up in human beings, we could notice a number of different things. For instance, our biological inheritance. Consider the human brain. We share parts of this with reptiles, the basic structure of certain parts of it. This is the, the primitive brain stem part of it. This gives us the capacity for quick reaction without things going through the thinking part of our mind. So fight, the fight reaction, the flight reaction, the freeze reaction, the immediate mobilization of our uh, system in the interest of our survival all comes from this particular kind of inheritance. And we see this when we're meditating. So, for instance, if you have an experience where on retreat, where suddenly there's a primal drive that comes up in the form of fear or anger or just shutting down, you're seeing the effect of this inheritance of this particular part of our brain structure. So when that arises within us, the fight or flight or freeze reaction to things, is that us doing it? I mean, we often claim it, right? Well, I did this thing, you know, I had this thing and I, I made this happen or this thing. Kind of like we thought about it for a long time and then we decided we'd just, you know, fight. When actually it's like this, right? when it's sounding like that. It just takes over. It's because an alarm is sounding in the system set off by some perception that is there that we might not even be conscious of. And it uses this quick built-in neural pathway that results in immediate action freezing. So you can see we sit on the meditation cushion with this human body and its complex central nervous system and part of what we experience arises from this particular source. Open system. The effects of inheritance. Not under the control of a self. 
So let's consider another dimension of this open system, uh, nature, which is ours. Consider the effects of family culture and dynamics. We're actually born with a brain which is shaped in terms of its neural branching and architecture by experiences that we have, especially when we're young. This in turn shapes the instrument of perception because the brain is very much involved with perception, of course, and lays down neural and perceptual highways. The roads that perception tends to follow. This is partly uh, set up or generated by life within the family, especially early life within the family. Family life and culture, family dynamics, can also teach us about or not teach us about things like sila, morality, It teaches us about how to view ourselves and others and how to treat others and how we think we should be treated. This is learned. This view develops within us, partially within uh, the family or our immediate environment in childhood. We learn from the healthy and wise aspects of the people who are around us. We also learn from the unhealthy and unwise actions of those around us, of course. What we learn shapes who we are, at least initially, what tends to arise in our body minds and how we tend to view this. And we see too that you know, many of our views and opinions are formed in childhood, either directly from what we're taught or in some response or reaction to it. Some of these things, these views and opinions and ideas are true to reality and skillful and some of them are not. And many inaccurate self-views are developed in childhood before the reasoning part of the brain is online. I mean, one thing we know about children is they have, as is often said, an uncanny ability to make whatever's going on within the environment or within the family, somehow their responsibility are about them. That's just what happens because the mind isn't, isn't fully formed yet. It can't like raise its hand and say, well, I'm not the reason daddy left. Daddy's got some issues, right? <laughs> Later in life, maybe, that understanding can arise, but not there, not at that time. So we can say, because we're an open system, we're shaped, affected by family culture and dynamics, and then part of what we experience arises from this source. If you're going to take it out to another level, the larger culture and its views and what happens uh, 
in the larger culture during the time we're growing up in particular, you'd see that the family isn't the only source of learning. The family itself is nested within the larger dynamics of the culture. So it exists within a context which affects how the family functions and what individuals experience. So who could, who could doubt, for instance, the effect of war or racism or poverty or homophobia within families or with individuals? Clearly, the external environment, whether it's safe or it's unsafe, whether it's caring or whether it's hostile, shapes our experience. We know, for instance, that cultures distribute power and authority. So membership, for instance, in a particular group can bring privilege and options or the lack of those. So here again, we have a a self-view often shaped by what we have heard or what has been told to us about people like us. So all of this affects our bodies, our minds. It limits or expands choice, supports health, or harms us. So because we're an open system, we're affected by the larger culture and events, and part of what we experience arises from this source. And of course, there is our personal journey. We're affected by what we individually experience in the course of our lives. The relationships we have with others, the things that we do, the choices we make, what we're exposed to, what we learn, what we avoid, how we care for our bodies and minds, who we associate with, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, how we incline our minds, how we turn attention, what we pursue, what we let go of, how we interpret what we encounter in our life path, what we make of it, the way we view our personal narrative. Because we're part of an open system, we're affected by our personal journey, and part of what we experience arises from this source. There's a whole other dimension of this, too, which I find very profound, which is something called epigenetics. E-P-I-G-E-N-E-T-I-C-S. Epigenetics. Earlier I was talking about my experiment in researching my biological heritage. And we know, for instance, that we inherit things from our parents. You know, we, we get, uh, through our parents' DNA, we get things like uh, our father's dark skin or our mother's eyes or our grandfather's nose or something like that. You know, they'll say, oh yeah, it looks like great-grandfather, you know, Luke or something like that. We recognize we inherit that in the observable. 
Or maybe sometimes people will say, well, you know, temperamentally, you know, he, she, she's just like her, her, uh, her father. But we inherit other things too. We inherit in our own bodies and minds specific effects related to what our ancestors have directly experienced. So it's now known that our individual genetic expression, meaning what our own uh, genome uh, does with its basic wiring, can either be turned on, certain genes can be turned on, they can be turned off, they can be muted, they can be hyped based on experience. And we can inherit from our ancestors the way their genome has been affected by what they have experienced and learned. These changes uh, can be inherited and passed on to future generations. So in a real kind of way, your own genetic experience and expression has been affected by things your ancestors have gone through. Some of their psychophysical reactions have been passed on to you through physical changes which you have inherited as part of your own DNA. So here, here's an example of something that's likely to be one of these, just a, co a common, fairly common one, I guess. There is apparently an inherited fear of snakes. Did you? So, and, and you can imagine how this would arise, you know, somebody or somebody's had some bad experiences and their genome changed as a result. So someone with this doesn't need to be taught to be afraid of snakes or see other people be afraid of snakes. They just are afraid of snakes. So in what we experience both on and off the cushion, there's not just the experience of our own life, our own personal history, our own uh, cultural experiences, family dynamics and things. The ancestors are always there. So the deep past is not past at all. It arises as causes and conditions that we presently experience in the now, in the arising moment. So let's take this big picture view back to what we're actually doing here. You may be wondering at this point, well, whoa, where's she going with this one? like genome and Neanderthals. And so what we're doing here, bhavana, the cultivation of heart and mind. So how does this relate? Well, here we're complete, we're oriented to the present, right? 
How many times have you heard in the meditation instructions or been told in your meetings with your teacher? Yeah, just move it into present tense. That's really one where you want to stay. Move into present tense. You know, don't need to like worry about what happened before, what's going to happen next, or you know, wonder what it means or where it came from or any of that. So sitting right on the cushion, of course, the mind is aimed completely at what can be known in the present moment. And as we see, it's surprisingly hard to stay there, to stay in the present. And we start to understand what dukkha is all about. So we're instructed to experience what's arising what's being known in a simple and direct fashion, right? Just what's there, what's there to be known. No search for interpretation or framing of it in concepts, no uh, psychological digging or speculation, unless it's to see the arising of that desire to speculate or digging, uh, digging arise spontaneously, right? This is not to say that psychological insight doesn't arise on retreat, because it certainly does. And interestingly enough, I've noticed for myself that the deepest psychological insight seems to arise when I'm not looking for it, right? So if the mind's in there, you know, trying to chew through why this emotion is there in relationship to the mother whatever it is, you can chew, 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 chew on that one a long time, right? Usually with agitation there. But truthfully, often, the best means to explore that kind of psychological area of investigation is with a different method called psychotherapy. And many of the people who who are teachers uh, now have done at least some of that themselves, right? Because we realize this isn't necessarily the best tool, this w- that we're doing here, the best tool for everything. And we don't really try to make it uh, a universal exclusive tool. But we do think this is the best tool for generic suffering, a generic understanding of suffering. So here, we move out of the story of me, out of the concepts, into, out of the personal uh, narrative of the self. And yet, of course, the big picture is there. Deep time is there. Your personal history is there. The family history, what happened to your parents, the genetics, modified through time by what your lineage has experienced, what it's learned. So it's all right there. It's sitting right there with you on the cushion, in the chair, right there in your own body and mind. So, you know, the hunt for the woolly mammoth that failed, and the way the genome changed to make every calorie count, is that the reason for the sloth and torpor in the middle of the afternoon? (laughs) It could be. You'll never know. (laughs) But that's a lot less personal, isn't it? (laughs) 
You know, the desire to take the territory of another group and to own their labor, the effects on the body and mind handed down, it's there. The search for understanding and peace, the spiritual practice which followed, the effects of this on bodies and mind extended through time. The terror of war, the way it affected the body and the mind passed down. You know, you could be sitting with a startle response from your great-grandfather's experience in the trenches in the First World War. Of course, you don't, wouldn't know it. The power of community, seeking justice, changing the ways things are done within the group, the effects of this on body and mind handed down. So sometimes we feel we know where certain experiences originate. Sometimes it seems like, oh, that's pretty clear. I get that. That's like clearly. Sometimes we guess. But generally we don't know or really even need to know where things come from because they come from so many, many causes and conditions. And most of these are not at all personal and not initiated by you. We don't know the sources, but we experience the effects. We experience in our own bodies and minds what has happened from the beginning. It's there in some way arising in the present within our own mind streams. This infinitely complex network of causes and effects extending through time, producing just now this particular experience. This unique, unrepeatable experience which is arising to be known. And then the question is, what then is our contribution? And it is in the wise meeting, the wise attending to this present manifestation. So let's get back to this point about not-self a little bit. Given the scale and the complexity involved in the creation of a moment's specific knowing. How can we take it so personally? Can we say it has a self or is owned by a self or that we control it? It's rather startling to realize that this personally known arising within our mind stream experience is so impersonal, so beyond our ability to edit. And in seeing this, we are seeing not self. We're seeing the impermanence of uh, arising manifestations due to many causes and conditions. We see that behind those causes and conditions are others causes and conditions just as impermanent. And in the seeing of not-self and 
impermanence, of course, we see dukkha. We see the unreliability of things. We see the instability of conditioned things and the futility of trying to exercise immediate control of what's going to bubble up at the mouth of the stream. We can't change the past. We can't change the causes and conditions that have already been put into motion. We can't stop this. This instability is built into things. This dukkha is built into the stream of conditioned things. But here's the really big question about all of this, which is, can this dukkha, can this suffering in some way be redeemed? Can dukkha be put to use? Can we, through self-effort, learn to end the suffering of resisting life as it arises in us. And this is the big question that the Buddha answered. The truth of dukkha. And then what can be done? How can it be met? this long chain of causes and conditions reaching, as I said, back so far, so broadly, what is to be done in relationship to this arising, which we don't own, we don't control, and yet we experience. The paradox of this all is that it's by coming to rest in the present moment with mindfulness established that we actually come to the place of maximum power. Our contribution to the redemption of suffering is wise attention. This is the radical act of opening to and accepting present experience as it is by learning wise relationship to what's arising, we develop skill in meeting it, in being present to it. We neither deny cling to, nor push away what is manifesting. Instead, we meet it fully in a skillful way, allowing it to be as it must be. And in in this way, we learn to meet experience with metta, with goodwill, wise intention. Wise intention, not just towards others and towards ourself, but wise intention in relationship to what is arising, immediate experience. In meeting what is difficult, we learn to respond with wise attention, with compassion, with 
care and kindness. In a sense, you could say, we learn to soothe the system by pervading it with confidence and with trustworthy presence. Like a skillful parent, we learn to hold ourselves and to provide self-support which is reliable in the arising of the difficult. The mind trains to meet it no matter what its roots are. Anything can arise in practice. As we've discussed, it's all there. Wisdom from the deep past, from our families, from our cultures, from our own experiences. Ignorance from the deep past, from our families, from our cultures, from our own experience things from sources we can't identify and will never know. What it is and where it came from. Who could ever put it into words, given all that's involved? We can train the mind to meet it all consistently with the same attitude of goodwill and compassion and with care and wise attention. When we learn how to do this, the wisdom in the mind stream increases and the ignorance decreases. With the decrease of what we might call discretionary suffering, joy arises. And with this, equanimity also arises and become stable, this great stability of mind, which can open to all things, touch all things, and remain balanced and grounded in wisdom. So in a certain kind of way, you could say that then all causes and conditions, all arisings become repurposed. They're used to establish wisdom and to liberate the mind. And this is really the ultimate act of creativity. The taking of the manifestation of all that has come before and by meeting it wisely and skillfully to redeem the suffering that's been carried forward within it. I talked earlier about how we are really an open system. How we're affected by all of these things. That means, of course, we're permeable and uh, affected by many different influences and causes and conditions, including those we cannot observe. That's been a kind of theme of this talk. There's another part of this, which is, in the same way, we are the source, the locus, of many causes and conditions entering the world. 
we sometimes know we've got influence because we can see the results that are traceable to our actions, right? Sometimes we may have the clear sense, well, you know, I did that thing and then this thing happened and that was a good thing or that was, ooh, that not so good thing. But I, I am responsible for that. But just in the same way that we have limited ability to really definitively uh, trace what the causes are for our immediate arisings, we have limited ability to really see the extent to which our actions of body, speech, and mind affect the more broad networking of beings. The results of many of our actions are not knowable. Yet we are always seeding things which bear results and contributing to future arisings. And much of what we put out into the world whether it's skillful or whether it's unskillful, will go way, way further in untraceable ways, but way, way further than we would ever imagine that we ever, ever be able to know. We do know some other things too, which is our capacity to make contribution to the world, to this open system in which we all participate. Our ability to make this contribution is set at the level of our bhavana, at the level of the development of our heart and mind. Whatever skills or knowledge or experience we have is most powerfully employed when we are skillful in a holistic way. When the heart and mind is steady and clear, open, grounded in goodwill, then our contributions are the most beneficial. whether we're in relationship to others in a family, in a work setting, in community, the development of our minds sets a limit. To the extent we are controlled by greed, hatred, and delusion, we can't see clearly, and then we cannot act wisely, optimally. Fortunately for us, the current level of development is not a set point. We have the capacity for infinite development, infinite development of our capacity to be of use to others through the very kinds of things that we're doing here on retreat learning how to meet a rising experience 
with balance, with presence, with wise attention, purifying the mind, purifying the intentions of the heart. You know, it's sometimes said that uh, problems can't be solved by the same level of development that created them. You ever heard that expression? Something new needs to enter into the situation or it just kind of like keeps recycling around within the current power dynamics or neurosis or level of wisdom or level of ignorance. It just kind of like people are trying to problem solve it within those parameters and it's just like not going to work. Problems can't be solved by the same level of development that created them. So if this is the case, then the need for humanity to break through to another level is urgent. For us to be effective in something like addressing climate change, we're going to have to go far beyond our current capacities. So how can we purify these minds? How can we go beyond our current limits? In part by realizing that we can. that whatever the current experience is in terms of what arises in the heart and mind, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how entrenched the suffering seems to be, no matter how deep the habits seem to be, it can all be purified. We don't own it. It's just there for us to meet. So how can we purify our minds? By ending our ownership relationship to what we experience, allowing it to have its own display as it must, given the causes and conditions this display, this manifestation of endless causes and conditions arising and passing away. And by meeting it with wisdom, meeting it with compassion, understanding the significance of the undertaking to meet experience with wise attention. The power of it the depth of the purification. May we undertake through our own self-efforts the redemption of suffering 
from whatever causes and conditions from which it arises. And may our lives be a source of blessing And may our actions of body, speech, and mind set into motion the causes and conditions for the arising of liberation for all beings. <laughs>